0: And if you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn with me. We'll be in two places. We'll be in Matthew 17, and then we're looking at the main place of Psalm 95, which is printed out uh, for you in your bulletin. And from January all the way through June, we're doing a series in Matthew 16 through 20 called The House That Jesus Builds. And this is the perfect passage just for where we are in the life of our church, coming out of COVID, trying to rebuild again. Because in that section, Jesus lays out a blueprint for how he's going to build his house. And so what we want to do is we want to listen to the blueprint that he lays out and then try and follow it as we do the same. And what we saw in chapter 16 is that in 16, he gives the foundation for the house. This is what the house is going to be built on. It's built on two things. It's built on a confession about who he is. He's the Christ. And then it's built on a commitment to follow him. So you're going to follow him. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow him. So confession, commitment. One of the things we looked at last week is the way we can express our commitment as a group to follow him is to do a couple things, to commit to attend, to commit to give, to serve. Those are the things in this stage of our church's life. We can do to follow him. And then in 17, we move into a discussion about rhythms. So what Jesus is going to do in chapter 17 is he's going to give us, all right, if you're going to experience my presence, you're going to experience my power, what are the rhythms that are meant to mark my house? You know, every household has just certain weekly rhythms, some rhythms that you go through. And in 17, it begins, because he says, you know, six days. Uh, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and then he led him up into the mountain. And so there's this movement of every seventh day, Jesus takes, You up the mountain into his presence, and then you go down the mountain into the world with his power. So, if the key words in 16 are confession and commitment, the key words in 17 are presence and power. Go up into his presence, out into the world with power. And so we're talking about that idea of what it means to enter into the Lord's presence. So our theme this morning is worship. We're talking about worship. And uh, even when I say worship, depending on where you're from, your experiences, you might think of of many uh, different things. Now, did you know that this week, the traditional, the contemporary, what is it? The hymn, the Praise song, uh, the, the song in Christ alone. Is that a contemporary hymn? Is it traditional? Is it a hymn? Is it a song? That, whatever it is, is 20 years old. And so 20 years, so does that make it new? Or is it old? Is it traditional or is it contemporary? And I kind of frame that in jest because, uh, you know, if you've been around churches for a while, you know that probably a decade, two decades ago, many churches were, uh, there was a lot of debate over traditional music, over contemporary music. Part of our story is the pastor I was, or the church I was a pastor of in, in Alabama. When I arrived there, I was the sixth pastor in six years, and they had two major church splits in that time. And it was all over, at least on the surface, over music. And it was a group who were kind of the traditional worship music people and the contemporary worship people. And then I this was not very skillful, leadership because i alienated both because <laughs> i said all right the contemporary group when you're talking about contemporary music you're not talking about contemporary you're talking about like 1990s music that's not contemporary and the traditional group you're not talking about traditional worship music you're talking about 1960s music so this is not a traditional versus contemporary debate it's just two different versions of contemporary like you want to talk about traditional, let's talk about like the Greek Orthodox Church. They still celebrate, their worship services is structured around John Chrysostom's liturgy. Now John Chrysostom started writing that in 355, and they're still following that. That's traditional. So like is Christ alone, is that traditional, is it contemporary? You know, we talk about, right, well, when we gather to worship, what are we even doing? Like, why do we sing? Why do we do the things we do? What is the worship service supposed to be like? I mean, is it supposed to be like a concert than a TED Talk? Is it supposed to be like you're entering into like a club? Is it supposed to be comedy hour? I mean, what, what is even this thing we're doing? And so what I want to do this morning is kind of pull back, because one of the best places you can look to see what real biblical worship is, is in Psalm 95. So let's look at Psalm 95. And I printed it out for you for this way. Like if you followed along, this has been a perfect passage. I still need well, I have to do it, because this would be a perfect passage if you were you know in COVID when we're doing the markings and you know at my desk with the pens and all of that. This would be a perfect passage to do it. I printed it up so you help see some of the, the rhythm and the beauty and the poetry of this wonderful psalm. But this is a call to worship, and it tells us about what worship is supposed to be, what we're supposed to experience, what we're supposed to do. So oh come. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." So, this is a, a psalm that's all about worship. It gives us what worship is intended to be, kind of the what and the how, and then a warning for how we're supposed to go about it. So, let's look first. Let's think about, all right, the what. Look at the what of worship. And did you notice that in the, it, throughout the psalm, that real worship engages your whole being? Like, it, you, you bring all of you to it. Do you notice all the difference? You're, if you hear my voice, then you kneel, and then your hearts, you notice how often the heart is engaged. There's an element of joy. So part of the primary emotion is there's a sense of joy. Oh, come, let us make a joyful noise. And that should be good news for all of my fellow friends who are musically declined. It's not a beautiful sound it's not skillful singing it's just noise joyful that's the key it's joyful it's emotional but then notice the the actions you're supposed to kneel, kneel before the Lord our Maker worship and bow down so it's it's physical there's things you you do there's a, an a, obedience a, a will but then also there's a cognitive element there's something you're supposed to hear hear, listen, respond. And the beauty of the gospel is its power to take up all of you. It can transform the mind, the way you think. You hear and you think differently. It can transform your heart and the way you feel. And it can shape your heart so you love what you should love. You fear what you should fear. You're joyful about the things you should be joyful about. Then it can transform the way you live. So you, you follow. But there's two kind of keys. Two big things you see here the emotions of both joy and reverence. So in any worship service, there should be a sense of joy and a sense of reverence. But even as you think about that, you know, one of the things to think about is how one of the things a church has to do is kind of, kind of provide the parameters, or this is kind of the parameters for, a not appropriate, but just kind of how we express our joy. Have you ever noticed that people express their joy different ways? You know, I find it so fascinating looking even at our children, like my two girls. They're so close in age, but they both express their joy in such different ways. I mean, one of them is just explosive, and it just comes flowing out, and it's, it's contagious, and it's wonderful. And the other one's a lot more reserved and internal, and you know, sometimes she'll kind of hold it in, and it's almost like she's going to explode, but she's, she's uh, expressing joy in a different way. Very similar to their parents, actually. You can guess (laughs) who's like who. But you think about it, we express differently. One of the ways you love others is uh, giving them the freedom and space to express it the way that they uh, express it. And sometimes those of us who are a little more subdued and reserved can kind of look with a a little suspicion about those who are a little more expressive and vice versa. Those who are a little more expressive might look at suspicion about us who are a little more subdued and think, well, they're not happy about anything. Well, they just express it in a different way. So we express it. It should be joyful. But then the next thing I want you to notice is what does it do? It ascribes worth. So our word worship comes from the Anglo-Saxon pushing together two words called worth-shaped, or shaped by worth so you're ascribing worth. You're being shaped by how you perceive the worth or the beauty of something. Notice those two strong fours. Do you see it? There's, oh, come, come to worship, sing, joyful noise, celebrate. Here's why. Four. Four. Our God is a great God, a great king. In his hands, notice the beginning, his hands. His hands are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountain. The sea is his. He made it. His hands formed the dry land. So you're celebrating his his beauty as the creator. This is why we worship. And then notice a second. Oh, come again. Let us bow down. Why? He's not just creator, but he's redeemer. For he is our God. We are his people. The sheep of his pasture. We, he is our good shepherd and he leads us. So you're seeing these two things. He's creator, he's shepherd, and it's shaping you. You know, one of the most natural things you do actually is worship. But often we don't, we don't make the connection that what I'm doing right now is a form of worship. You know, have you ever heard, uh, you see somebody do something and they say, oh, it's just like it's second nature to them. You know, often you'll hear, you know, sometimes announcers uh, for sports things, you know, so often they say the most ridiculous things. And like sometimes, you know, they'll, they'll watch like Tiger Woods hit this amazing golf shot and say, oh, it's just it's just so natural. It's like second nature. It's like, <laughs> nobody just, that just doesn't happen. That took a tremendous amount of work for it to become natural. And so with worship, worship is our first nature, but it takes a tremendous amount of work to for it to become second nature or natural. Or we're worshiping the right things. See, we're all made to worship, but our problem is we place that worship on the, the wrong things. So here's a little di- couple questions to diagnose your heart, so you can feel uh, like what are some of the dynamics of when I'm actually worshiping. So just think about uh, what is something in your life that has just captured your imagination. What's something in life that you call, call it the daydream destination. Like, what's this destination that you go to when you're daydreaming? I mean, some of you have already been there for the last 10 minutes of the sermon. (laughs) Where do you go? And then why do you go there? Like, what is it about that place? You know, is it the beach? Is it the mountains? Is it the golf course? Or is it, what is it? Where do you go that's captured your imagination? Or actually, kids, I want you to think about this. So kids or, or small kids or big kids. Uh, when was the last time you saw something and you just, oh. And like just something was moved in your heart where you said, I got to have that. We were walking in our neighborhood, and our neighbors had this like, this you know like, kind of this mechanized like car that kids can ride. But it was a green John Deere tractor with a trailer hitched up to it. And my four-year-old saw it, and he just. Oh. <laughs> Daddy, can I have that? And he's it's like, it was like he was being—it was a, a homing beacon—and he just started walking into her. I'm like, no, you can't. You can't just walk up on their church and, or their porch and start driving the, the little type's tractor away. So, when was the last time you had that experience? We just oh, that's actually your first name. That's worship. Or maybe think about, all right, what are the things that you spend money on the most effortlessly? I mean, one of the things, it's like not even an expense, you know. What, that much for this? It's not even an expense. You know, what, organic, grass-fed crackers are $32 for three? It's not even an expense, because I'm eating healthy. Now, what is in your life where it isn't, it, you don't even think about spending money in there. You know, that's getting you an area, this is an area of, of, of worship. Or you think about when was the last time you were engaged in something and you lost complete all track of time? You say it was like time just flew, time flies. Actually what you're you're, you're, you're scratching the surface of the reality that you're an eternal being and you were meant to uh, come out of time and enter into the beauty of something. And so all of that is kind of the first nature of our worship. Now, the whole challenge is how can we move that so we place our worship on the right thing? So we place it on the Lord. You know, the classic call to worship in the Bible is the word hallelujah. You know, it's a Hebrew word, and it comes from two words, halel, which means to boast. And then Yah, Yahweh, boast in Yahweh. You know, like the classic text in Jeremiah 9, let not the wise man boast. In his wisdom. Let not the strong man boast in his strength. Let not the rich man boast in his wealth." See, these are things we're tempted to worship, but what should we boast in? It's in the Lord, and real worship happens when we begin to see the Lord as beautiful, not just useful. And there's a way of praying, and there's a way of living, and there's a way of worshiping Him where we see God as helpful or useful, but not necessarily as beautiful. And real worship happens when we begin to move in that transition. You know, this was a couple years ago. Uh, there was a fascinating podcast that Adam Grant did on his podcast. So he's a, he calls himself he's an organizational psychologist who works out of the Wharton uh, Business School. And on his podcast, the name of the podcast was called "Death by Meetings." <laughs> And so this was pre-COVID, so I would love to see how the dynamics had changed. But he interviewed a man who worked for he was worked for Cisco, you know, the technology company, and they called him the meeting czar. And his whole job was to go around to all of the meetings in the company and make sure they were efficient and productive. And so he had this whole criteria where if any coworker wants a meeting from you, then they have to state and designate all right, what's it for? What's the purpose of this meeting? What is the agenda? What are the action items? What are the next steps? Do we need to make this more efficient? His first job is to make all meetings no more than 20 minutes because it's more than 20 minutes, then you failed in your planning, and they're all standing meetings. So you've got to be efficient. You sit down and you just start to have loaf, and they keep you standing up. So these meetings, no chit chat. We're not talking about problems. We're not talking about feelings. We want goals. We want outcomes. Now, you may be here and think, that is amazing. I would give anything to have that at my employer, at my place of employment. But could you imagine if you took those dynamics to other relationships? So let's imagine your wife comes to you. And says I feel like we've just been lost in the pace of life and we need to we need to reconnect and you say yeah yeah all right well okay all right so give me give me the purpose what's the purpose of this meeting you want to have a date okay let me pull out my calendar all right what's the purpose what's the agenda what are the action items what are the goals what are the outcomes she might say the outcome is I'm gonna give you a black eye (laughs) or could you imagine your 13 year old daughter comes home from school with tears in her eyes and knocks on your office door and says daddy I need to talk to you." he said, all right, hold on, <laughs> okay, okay, let's see. What's it, Friday? So sixth the thir- 7th Oh, now you're, you got school. Um, what? I mean, can you imagine? You know, there's certain relationships that aren't meant to be useful. They're meant to be beautiful. And that's what worship is. There's a type of worship where you treat God like a business associate. And that's not really entering into the point, the presence. Notice all the joyful language. Come into his presence. The whole point is that you enter into his presence. So you know him and he knows you. So now, all right, that's what it is. But now let's think for a minute. All right, how do you do that? What are some of the pieces? And first, did you notice how it's, it's corporate? It's corporate or it's congregational. Notice all the us, let us sing, let us, let us come, let us make, for this is who God is, then oh come, let us worship, let us kneel, when we, we are the sheep. Notice all the corporate language, you know, here's the key, real worship is personal It has to be personal. It has to be you coming into God's presence. Him speaking to you. You personally encounter the living Lord who shows you His beauty and you begin to love Him. It's personal, but it's never just private. It's always communal. It's always corporate. It's always with others. You know, C.S. Lewis, he talks about this in one of his books where, you know, he was part of the Inklings, and they had a group where they would always go to, uh, to, to the pub once a week and talk about what they were reading and, and what they were writing, and three of the core members of that were C.S. Lewis, J.R. Tolkien, and Charles Williams. And then when Charles died, you know, C.S. Lewis said, when I lost Charles, I thought, is one way he comforted himself, Well, uh, at least now I will get more of Ronald or J.R. Tolkien. But actually, I got less. See, there are things in Ronald that only Charles could bring out. You know, there's realities about who God is that if you're not with others, you'll just never see. That's why we have to be together. You know, you'll never really know God as all you have is I. You have to have an us. You have to have a we. And so it's us. And then notice one of the things about the worship dynamic is it's us coming into his presence, but this is something that we, we're doing together. You know, you're not a spectator. This is not a performance. Notice the lead instrument of the worship is the collected voice of the people. This is why in the debates of contemporary or traditional worship, it often got framed as, do you have an organ or do you have drums and a guitar? And that misses the point. Because you can not be an us. An organ can drown out the congregation just like the drums can drown out the congregation. But the point is that the primary instrument of worship is the voice of the people. This is something we're doing together. We're not spectators where we come to watch a performance. And then you see that the second thing is it's rhythmic. There's a dance. It's back and forth. We sing. He speaks. We respond. You move back and forth. There's a dynamic of joyful praise, thanksgiving, confession, where you're hearing. There's a rhythm to it. And that's why one of our key words is liturgy. We use liturgy to provide the rhythms of the worship service. It gives us the structure. Because structures tell stories. Structures or stories have structures and all great worship services follow a certain type of structure and story. You think about like uh, the worship service should not be built on the structure of a modern entertainment event. So you just kind of think about what are modern entertainment events? Like what do you do? What do you have? You have like the warm-up act and then you kind of, and it doesn't matter if you kind of get there or not. That's when people are just kind of funneling in. And then you have the real show, the one you pay for, and most of the time you're just kind of passively receiving, and then uh, you leave. And so that's not how the worship service is structured. You know, in order to participate, you really need to know what's, what's happening, what's going on, that each piece is intentionally designed to do something. And you think about just in any area of life, the certain structures, how important they are to have in place so you can really uh, in some way kind of let yourself go. I was thinking about this this past week at our uh, the gym we're members of. And uh, you may not believe this, but actually Cynthia, well, I am. You believe it from her, but uh, we're faithful attenders to a couple of the exercise classes at our gym. And we have one uh, one leader of the class who we really love. But one of the things I love is he structured the class in such a way where I understand exactly where we are. So I know all right, this point is for movement prep. This point is for strength and skill development. This point is for metabolic conditioning, and when we're in each place, I actually know what's happening so I can at least try as hard as I can. But then we had a new instructor who uh, a new instructor who didn't follow that system, and it kind of seemed like everything was jumbled and it was so disoriented because I was like, no, wait, are we doing that now? Because if we're doing that now, i got to save energy or I'm going to die when we get to this here. And so I, I don't know where we are. And so one of the things in you know, a worship service is important, right? what's, the, what's the structure? Kind of where, we, where are we so we can enter into the Lord's presence? And here at the bottom, so you can jump down on your notes to the threefold pattern from Leviticus. And uh, the way we structure our service here is to follow that pattern and that structure that was established, established there. You know, I was teasing last week our accountants and how there's no joy of accounting. And there's a lot of uh, places in the Bible that are just filled with lists and names and numbers. And sometimes people kind of think, oh, you know, this is boring. And it's kind of like if your accountant comes to you and has this list of spreadsheets and all these numbers. And he's talking about profits and losses. And and he's talking about, uh, he's got colors and they're red and they're black. And you might look at it and say, oh, they're boring. So, well, if you understand the story they're telling, you're either going to be really excited or really anxious, depending on how well you know the story. They're telling you a story. And Leviticus is one of those books that you can read and can be really difficult because the whole book is all about what's required to enter into the Lord's presence. And, and God gives a whole different cycle and series of sacrifices because sacrifice is the way you enter into his presence. But if you can kind of begin to see some of the structure of the story they're telling, you can appreciate what's, what's happening. And so there's a whole series of sacrifices that are called like the sin offering, the guilt offering, the offering for atonement. All of these sacrifices are designed so you can come in to God's presence. So that's the first thing. It, number one, it's, it's in. You come in. And so the whole idea is that we are sinners and God is not. He is holy and righteous and we are not. And because of our sin, there's a separation. There's a gap. And He's made a way so that gap can be covered. And that gap is covered by the blood of His Lamb. And so the blood of the Lamb is spilt so we now can come into His presence. So the first movement is sacrifices that bring you in. He calls you in and then He makes a way. He has paid a way so you can come in. And so in our worship service, the way we experience that is the beginning when we have our call to worship and that culminates in our confession where we say we now are pausing to confess our sins and receive his forgiveness because that's what brings us in. And then the second cycle of sacrifices that you see in Leviticus, they have all types of different names. Some are the the whole offering. Some are the burnt offerings or the consecration offerings. These are offerings where the sacrifice is laid on the altar and is completely consumed, the whole thing. And the idea is that the whole thing is then um, drawn up and it ascends into God's presence. These are always the sacrifices where it says, it was a pleasing aroma To the Lord. So, this is the idea that these things in our place are fully dedicated to the Lord, and we are committing ourselves completely to Him, and we are brought up. So, we go up into His presence. That's the second thing up, in, and then up. And then the third cycle of sacrifices, these, these are the ones you actually live for. These are the good ones uh, in the sense of these are the fellowship offerings or the grain offerings or the new wine offerings. Or these are all the ones where there's only a piece of the sacrifice given, then it's shared among everyone. This is the one where the, the bull is slaughtered, and then you have a feast. You have a barbecue. You have a cookout. And these are the fellowship. And what it means is that the Lord is inviting you to his table, and he's now sharing with you around his table. And so that's the third, around. You feast And so the way we kind of symbolize those things is the first one in, we lead up to confession. The next songs uh, we sing are our sacrifices to bring us up. And then at his table, he opens up his word and we eat from his word. And then we share in communion because we're at his table feasting in his presence. That's the the movement of coming into his presence, the order, the structure. And so then what is that meant to do? After we move into his presence, notice the final piece I want you to make note of here is that notice then it's restful. See, the whole goal is when you come into his presence is to hear his voice. This so is today, if you hear his voice, then he gives them this strange warning. He says, Do not harden your hearts like they did at Meribah when they put me to the proof or the test. So, what's that a reference to? It's actually a reference to Numbers 11 when the Lord was leading the people to the wilderness and they got tired. See, they had no food. They had no water. They would grumble. They would, they would complain. They're in the wilderness because of their own disobedience and then they cry out for food and so the Lord miraculous, miraculously sends manna and so He sends them this manna. So every day they're feeding off of this, this food that He's provided for them in a miraculous way and then at some point they get tired of the manna and then they have this line, this manna, this manna, how long are we going to eat this? And what he's saying is that he's provided this miraculous gift of his goodness to uh, provide for them as they walk through the wilderness. And then their, their hearts are hard and they're, re- they're not receiving it with gratitude So that's the whole problem. All right, how can we, when we come into his presence, the goal is to hear his voice, but then hear his voice in such a way where our hearts aren't hard, where we reject it or push it away, where that voice becomes the most powerful thing we hear to experience real transformation. There's a story I love that Tim Keller tells about uh, one of his first years in the ministry. as a young man in his early 20s, fresh out of seminary, and he was a pastor in a a small kind of blue-collar town in Virginia called Hopewell, Virginia. And he tells about one of the first people in the little church he was a pastor of that uh, he got to know pretty well. Uh, He said this this guy was functionally illiterate. He said he was an older man. Uh, He was physically disabled and... Uh, Tim says he, he was mad. He was just mad. He was mad at people of other races. He was mad at his own family. He was mad at his children because how they were living. He was mad at his wife. He was just mad at everyone. But then he slowly kind of came under the power of the gospel. And they were going through Romans, slowly working through Romans 8, and slowly started noticing that this man seems to be softening. The, the edge is kind of gone. He's changing. And he started to meet with him and started to talk with him. And he'd ask his wife. And his wife said, yeah, I, I don't know what it is, but it's good. Keep, see if you can keep it going. And he started you know, meeting with him, co- uh, talking to him. And uh, he said, he will never forget one day they were spending time together. And he said the anger seemed to be just seeping away. And Tim uh, asked him, you know, what's going on? Like, how is this happening? Uh, what, you know, how are you feeling? How is this happening? And uh, the man responded, well, here, here's the thing. Uh, for my whole life, whenever people would do this or they would do that to, to me or something would happen, I'd always have this, this voice in my head that I didn't know how to answer. And, you know, he's a young, you know, young, Tim Keller's a young kid just at a seminary. You know, hears somebody talking about voices in their head. And he's like, oh, that's not good. So. Uh, tell me more about that voice in your head. And he said, well, I just hear this voice and it would just say, you know, you're an idiot, you're nothing, you're an illiterate fool, all this is happening is because you're a failure, you're good for nothing, and you'll never amount to nothing. And he said, for my whole life, I just would hear that voice. And then Tim's kind of shocked. And he says, well, where did that voice come from? Like, is that, is that the voice of your f- dad or your mom? And he no, no, stop it. You know, he, said, he said, don't psychoanalyze me. Stop that. He says, it was a voice that I had no answer for. It's just always been there. But ever since we've been diving into Romans 8, I now have an answer to that voice. I hear another voice when that voice says, you're good for nothing, you'll never amount to anything. Since, we've been, since I've been learning the gospel, you know, I used to think that God was like this really harsh second grade teacher who was constantly just watching, 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 waiting to just smack me with a ruler as soon as I stepped out of line. But now I'm beginning to realize when that voice speaks that there's actually no condemnation for me. And I'm accepted in Him and that Christ loves me. So when the voice begins to say, you're nothing, you're never going to amount to nothing, I say, ha, the joke's on you because I already am something. I already am something because right, Christ loves me and He gave Himself for me. And do you know the power of the voice when you hear these voices that come and it's the voice of guilt that's trying to, to, to heap guilt on you? Do you know how to hear another voice that says, no, in Christ there is therefore now no condemnation for all those who are in Christ? Or do you know how to combat when the voice comes that uh, is agonizing over suffering you're experiencing and saying, God is not good or you deserve this? You have a voice that can say, I consider this present suffering not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us? Or when the voice comes as tempting you to be anxious and give way to fear, can you hear another voice that says, I know in all of these things, God is working for the good for those who love Him and are called according to His purposes? Or do you know the voice of accusation when it comes accusing you of your misdeeds and your missteps and all of your failures? Do you hear another voice that says, hey, if God is for us, who can be against us? Or when the voice comes as tempting you to self-pity and you say, Woe is me. Why is, is this happening to me? Do you hear another voice that says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not freely give you all things? Or when you are fearful and the voice of separation comes and you're afraid that you're going to be separated for all you have lived for and all you have loved. Can you hear another voice that comes that says, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come will ever be able to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I mean, do you hear that voice? And that's what he's saying in worship. The goal is to enter into his presence and to hear his voice. And when that voice becomes the dominant voice that you hear, you will be changed. You will be transformed. You will live differently. And so we come and we look and he says, come, come into my presence. You know, notice the things that they celebrate here. They celebrate what he's done with his hands. His hands as the Creator. His hands as the Good Shepherd. You know, we can add a third thing to the list that we can celebrate, that, the things He's done with His hands. His hands are now nailed, pierced. And He opens and offers them an invitation to come. You know, they celebrate that He's the Shepherd. And we know that the Good Shepherd will go so far even to lay down His life for the sheep. So His sheep hear His voice and they come. You know, our hearts are restless until they will rest in Him. And so each week, He beckons us to His table. And part of why we do communion every week is just to remind ourselves that He's he's calling us into His presence. And He's issuing the invitation to enter in. So on the night that He was betrayed, He took the bread and He broke it. And He said, this bread represents my body, which is broken for you. Then he took the cup, and this cup represents his blood that's been shed for the forgiveness of sins, so that we can experience the way that he has made the opening, so we now can come into his presence. Lord, we praise you for your word. We praise you for who you are, and we ask that you help us. We ask that you would turn us into the kind of people who are a joyful, worshiping people. We thank you that you are our rock that you are our refuge. You offer stability. So I pray for anyone who's come in here this morning and they feel that life is uncertain. It's become unstable. They don't know where to stand. They don't know where to turn. We pray. pray that you would be their rock. We praise you that you are our shepherd. So I pray that anyone who's come in here this morning and they feel lost, they feel aimless, they don't know who they are. They don't know where they are. They don't know where they're going. I ask that as the good shepherd, you would lead them. Pray for anyone who's coming here in this room and they feel empty. They don't feel whole. Praise you that as a good shepherd, you feed us. So pray that you would feed them. We ask that you do all of these things and many, many more by the power of your spirit. In your name I pray. Amen. And now may the love of a dying Savior, the power of a risen Savior, and the hope of a returning Savior be yours now, this week, forever and always. Amen. Go in peace.